What does Adam Smith have to do with literature? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Caroline Brashears. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Caroline Brashears. Caroline is a professor of English at St. Lawrence University. She's been published at EconLib, the Journal of Ayn Rand Studies, Modern Philology, 18th Century Fiction, Afraben Online, Script and Print, the International Journal of Pluralistic Economic Education, and Philological Quarterly. Her book, 18th Century Women's Writing and the Scandalous Memoir, was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2017. Caroline was recently an Adam Smith scholar at Liberty Fund, and her current research focuses on Adam Smith and literature. She teaches courses on fairy tales, 18th century British literature, and Jane Austen. Needless to say, there may be some spoilers in this episode on books like Harry Potter, 1984, and other great stuff we'll be talking about. Caroline, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much. I am absolutely delighted and honored to be here. And we're very happy to have you on. So Caroline, we we base each of our episodes on a question and just go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Uh, Our question today is, what does Adam Smith have to do with literature? And of course, we're going to get into some specific examples, and I'm pretty excited for that. But I want to start general first and work our way down. So sort of from principle to example, if you will. But um, before we jump right into that, I just want to start our listeners on thinking about some of the stuff that you're working on. So I I hear you're working on a project that focuses on how to use Smithian theory and insights to analyze literary texts generally. So tell us about that. Where has that endeavor been taking you? What kind of adventures have you had? And uh, in general, what have you learned so far? Just give us a bit of a taste of what you're working on. I'm writing a book called Adam Smith, Literature and Human Flourishing. And it began when I was on sabbatical and uh, I went to Liberty Fund as an Adam Smith scholar. And I discovered while I was there that Adam Smith had a a really fascinating book and his library catalog. It was a memoir of a scandalous actress named Georgianne Bellamy. And it really stuck out because the rest of his library catalog was full of books like Samuel Johnson's plays, Hume's writings, Voltaire. So what was the scandalous woman doing in his catalog? So I began researching this and found all kinds of fascinating connections, personal and uh, theoretical, between Adam Smith and George Ann Bellamy. And uh, from then there began to analyze uh, what reading them together might bring us, right, in terms of insights on Bellamy's memoir and in terms of Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. And... It was such a wonderful surprise to discover that Smith's writings, especially in theory of moral sentiments, really illuminate what's, what Bellamy is doing in this very, very long bio, autobiography. It's six volumes, right? And it, it really illuminates how she's trying to tell her life story, which is about being an actress and learning to be an ethical person over the course of her life. And so what she does in the memoir is just this beautiful example of Adam Smith's impartial spectator process, because the memoir is written as if it were to uh, a correspondent who's obviously an imagined correspondent. And she's constantly adjusting her narrative to please that correspondent who is, you know, essentially an impartial spectator. And as Bellamy is narrating her past life, she is then the impartial spectator of her earlier self. And then she's able within the text to show how her younger self was developing moral judgment over the years. So it's just such a brilliant example of what Smith is writing about in the theory of moral sentiments. So it was it was this one connection between the theory of moral sentiments and this autobiography that got you thinking, hey, we could probably do some really in-depth application of these concepts to other literature as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the other really interesting thing that came out in my research is that Bellamy's memoir was published in 1785, and Smith had a copy of it, and 
I've, I've looked at his copy. He obviously read it, right? They're, the the pages are rumpled, they're dog-eared, they're torn. And he was interested first in the parts that concerned his friends, right? Like Alexander Waterburn and David Hume, her, who lent her lodgings. He's interested in the politicians, right? Um, who were famous at the time. He's interested in her account of a theater that she premiered in, and it was the theater in Glasgow that he, as a professor, opposed building, right? Um, but the most interesting thing was that she's writing about issues that he expands upon in his final edition of the theory of moral sentiments. So Bellamy's memoir is really a, a valuable and overlooked context for those final revisions. And if you go back and look at the pages that Smith has turned down and dog-eared and heavily read, they correspond to a lot of those editions and, and the final version of the theory of moral sentiments. So reading them together is just brilliantly illuminating for both authors. And I just have to, have to ask uh, as a quick digression here, because I know we have a lot of Adam Smith nerds that like to listen to. So where, where did you get to see his copy uh, of, of this autobiography? Oh, it's, it's at the University of Edinburgh. So yes, I had to go to Scotland and it was so much fun. Um, all six volumes are there. Uh, Smith's copy, it's, you know, it's beautifully bound. It's got his book plate in it. Yeah. That's awesome. Sounds epic. So, so you you do note that you know, like uh, obviously, and, and this makes sense uh, that that you know Smith was reading this autobiography and also had it in his mind while he was uh, you know writing another edition of the Theory of Moral Sentiments, and and, and of course you have noted before that you know. Smith's work can also be used to analyze other uh, realist novels, for instance, like Jane Austen, George Eliot, and so on and so forth. Um, but what are the kind of ways you think his ideas can be taken farther into literature, right? Because I think it, it makes sense when we talk about some of the more contemporary literature at the time or around that time. But but it seems that you think it's it's not just about being able to figure out, hey, like how you know his reading impacted his work, or even how we could look at his time and his contemporaries. You, you seem to think that there's a lot of legs to this. There's a lot of legs to this. And it starts with the fact that Adam Smith's first job teaching was actually as a professor of literature and, and rhetoric. And he was the first person in a British university really to use English literature in those courses on Bellet. And so reading those is very interesting because when you go back to the, the lecture notes that have survived from his students, we see what he's thinking about and we see how he connects literature with the theories that he develops about morality, for instance. Uh, for example, he says that, you know, that the basic principles of good writing and morality are at root the same. They are common sense, okay? And he talks about the importance when you are writing to, to be clear and to be honest and appeal to the reader's sympathy. And of course, sympathy is the cornerstone of uh, his theory of moral sentiments, which starts with sympathy as uh, the foundation upon which you build in learning moral judgment. So we learn a lot from looking at those lectures and of course, his theory of moral sentiments is also very, very valuable in analyzing literature, not only because it has literary examples, but because he says literature is one of the best ways in which we learn morality. And it provides a window in, into the ways in which we can, we can talk about literary texts and the issues that the characters are dealing with, the, the issues of virtue, right? Um, probably a lot of readers are familiar with, you know, Pride and Prejudice, right? Which is a, you know, deals extensively with the problem of pride and vanity and how you deal with that. Um, in addition, of course, he's the author of The Wealth of Nations, right? And so his writings also help us think about, you know, what are the things that we need to flourish as human beings, right? And we need, you know, good values, we need, we need ethics. We also need uh, systems in place that enable people to be free and to exchange things freely, which leads to greater prosperity. 
So Smith is really great in providing a kind of coherent system that we can apply in lots of different ways to literature of all kinds. And so I'm, you know, obviously applying it to a memoir, it applies to realist novels, it also applies to science fiction, it applies to fantasy, it applies to a range of genres. And so it can help us think about the kinds of questions we want to ask about literature. How do these texts help us understand what's beautiful about life, but also how do these texts convey uh, lessons about human flourishing and the best practices to achieve that. And one thing that really excites me about your project too is that obviously uh, Adam Smith nerds and I, in that I include myself in it will definitely say that you know the theory of moral sentiments will help you look at life a different way and helps you think about things like that. And of course reading nerds, which again I can include myself in that as well, will say just reading literature is great to understand life and helps you look into the great things. But um, having been someone that you know has read the theory of moral sense myself and has also read a lot of literature, Probably subconsciously, I was making some connections, but it's not until I sort of got into the, the the mindset you are in preparing this podcast that I thought, oh yeah, like there is even sort of that third way. It's not only to enjoy TMS and literature, but to think of them simultaneously. That is very interesting. So I think that's sort of something that anyone should keep in mind if they're listening and missing any of those holes. They should definitely read the theory of moral sentiments, read more literature, of course, but the actually consciously thinking of them both in connection. I've even been reading a couple books recently and keeping TMS in the front of my mind. I go, oh okay. That makes a lot of sense. So that's that's very exciting. That's just a very personal note on my part, but it must be very exciting for you too to make those connections consciously, right? So exciting. And it's so exciting to do this in the classroom with, with students, right? So I teach a course on Harry Potter and um, I know a lot of people think of Harry Potter as fun, but not necessarily anything that's like valuable reading. And I reading it alongside uh, Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments really illuminates how uh, J.K. Rowling is dealing with really powerful issues about ethics and, and the process of growing up. And when I, when I teach this, right, I have my students read, you know, parts of the theory of moral sentiments about developing that impartial spectator process, parts of theory of moral sentiments about virtues, like, like vanity and pride and the way in which Rowling is depicting characters who are struggling with the issues that they as readers are also struggling with in their own lives. So this is super valuable for all kinds of literature. And actually, I'm glad you mentioned Harry Potter and, and a couple of, the, of, of sort of the pillars of Smith's theory of moral sentiments, because one thing I thought would sort of be fun to do today as well is go a little bit deeper into a different pillars of uh, Smith's TMS, but also apply it to Harry Potter, because I thought, why not do what we're talking about, right, already? So one Smithian concept to explore is obviously what you've already mentioned, uh, uh, sympathy. Um, now, for those unfamiliar with Adam Smith, can, can you get a, a bit into that? Can you tell us what he means by, by sympathy? And then I have a couple of Harry Potter questions for you. But what, what does he mean by sympathy for those that might be unfamiliar? Right. And so he's using sympathy in the sense it was used in the 18th century, um, which is what today philosophers call a kind of projective empathy, right? And so Smith uh, begins his theory of moral sentiments by starting with the point that we're, we're naturally interested and what's happening to other people, right? If we see someone suffering, right? Like we, we immediately stop and say, well, what has happened to you? And Smith says that there's a process by which we try to understand and judge um, someone else's response to something. And we, we try to understand the exact situation that person is in. We try to put ourselves in to that situation and imagine what that person is experiencing and try to, to understand how we would feel and, and respond and compare that with the response of the person who's experiencing that, right? And if those are um, coinciding, right, and, and we feel sympathy in our responses, we, we feel that that response is proper. Right, it's, it's a matter of what he calls propriety as a standard of judgment. And we use this to understand. So for instance, Alex, if you suddenly started screaming and I said, oh my gosh, Alex, what has happened to you? And you held up your finger and said, oh my God, I got a paper cut. All right, um, I'm gonna say, okay, um, what does it 
you know, what is it like to have that paper cut? And my response is not going to be maybe uh, the same as yours because you're overplaying that. I'm not going to be able to sympathize with that because that seems like an overreaction, right? But there will be other situations in which it's super helpful, right? If, um, you know, something terrible has happened to someone else and you're able to put yourself in that person's situation and understand what they're going through and what they're feeling, then you can judge the propriety of that and offer them the assistance that they need. And this is a process that um, you can apply to yourself. And this is, um, as, as um, David Raphael has pointed out, this is um, one of Smith's major philosophical contributions, this idea of the impartial spectator as a window to self-judgment. This predates Freud. This predates Freud's idea of conscience, right? And so in this process, what happens is you, you try to step outside of yourself. And so imagine yourself as a spectator. And what would that impartial person think about how you are acting? right? Is this a proper thing to do, right? And through that process, you can learn to moderate your response to something or maybe ratchet it up, you know, if you're, you know, for instance, underestimating yourself, right? And so that, that process of moral judgment enables us to become better people. And the more we practice that, the better we get at it. I think Rowling's Harry Potter series is just brilliant in depicting how the protagonist, Harry, develops this judgment. Such a fabulous character. Because we start, we start at the beginning of the novel with him as this, you know, this orphan who's taken in by an aunt and uncle who, who really don't want him. We have, you know, another son who they spoil. And so they treat Harry like dirt, right? He's made to sleep in this cupboard under the stairs. It's like got cobwebs and like, he's, he's just so abusive, right? And our hearts go out to him. We sympathize with him and he's abused by his cousin, right? And yet, and yet, despite everything he has gone through, Harry exhibits extraordinary sympathy toward other people and even animals that he encounters, right? This right. is the famous first meeting with Ron on, on the Hogwarts train, right? He sits down next to Ron and Ron is all pitiful, right? He's poor. He doesn't have a lot of money for the lunch cart and Harry gets it, right? And they have this immediate sympathy and he doesn't judge Ron badly for being poor. He, he understands that situation and they, they form this friendship, right? It's this pleasure of mutual sympathy that, that Smith writes about. And then, you know, one of the villains comes by Malfoy and mocks Ron. Harry immediately leaps to Ron's defense because Harry's impartial spectator is able to not only put himself in Ron's shoes, but put himself in Malfoy's shoes and to understand that what Malfoy is doing is wrong and, and to say this is wrong and to reject that behavior. And so Harry does this from the beginning and then we, we see Harry growing in moral judgment over the course of the series. So we're like growing with Harry. It's so beautiful. And, and, and it's interesting to note, uh, especially as part of this character too, right? Is that especially with the, the, the scene on the train with, with Ron is this is like, of course, as you said, like he, he's an orphan and so on and so forth and, and abuse and, and coming from a terrible situation. But in between there as well, he discovers that his parents had actually left him tons of riches, which he has in a bank account. So I think that makes that scene even more powerful when, you know, another essentially rich kid Malfoy approaches him on the train and says, hey, like you want to be hanging out with the right sort, right? Then, you know, you he, he's able to sort of uh, sympathize in the true Smithian sense. I mean, with, with, with Ron's poverty, but also the fact that for all intents and purposes, Harry's rich in some ways. So I find that's in even another layer there too, right? Is that he's not like, oh, I got a bunch of money. I'm good now. Right. Absolutely. Harry, Harry is very careful to use that money wisely. And uh, one of the, my favorite things he does is, is when he wins money later on, he donates it to uh, the Weasley twins as an investment in their joke shop, right? And entrepreneurs, Smith would love the Weasley twins, right? They're all over it. 
Absolutely. And and one thing that I, I you noted in one of your essays that I read, which is that um, that the powers of sympathy and empathy, like, and I say sympathy in the Smithian sense, empathy today for short form for people to understand it a little better, um, it can also be used for manipulation and bad, right? So why don't you talk a bit about that? Because you said that this this idea that you can actually sort of understand people and put yourself in their shoes, there's also areas in the book, like for instance, with Voldemort, that Rowling explores that this can actually be a, even some a skill you can develop, for lack of a better term, that can actually be used for bad purposes. So it's a power we have, but but still not, that makes it neutral. It's, it's about how we use it. Absolutely. Uh, Rowling is very articulate um, about what she's doing there. And she, she gave a really fabulous speech at Harvard, and you can see the video online. And she later published that as a book called Very Good Lives in which she explains that um, one of the most powerful things people can, can develop is this kind of empathy. And she talks a lot about her work with Amnesty International and how this had an impact on her in developing this empathy. And she says, you know, you can, you can choose how you respond to the world around you. You can choose to empathize, right? And you can choose to... Um, understand people and try to help them, right? You can uh, choose to ignore the things that are around you that are wrong, right? The, the people who are suffering, the people who are enslaved. And if you are evil, you can use that empathy to manipulate people who are vulnerable. And so in Rowling's series, we see her really developing this argument because Harry is able to use this great empathy he has to, to do really great things, to help people, to show love, to, um, you know, sacrifice himself for others. Whereas Voldemort, who is evil, is likewise able to get in people's heads and uh, to understand what it is they want and to promise them that in order to manipulate them to do what he wants. But he doesn't care about them. He doesn't have friends. Not, he has... He has no genuine, what we would call sympathy now for other people. It's just a tool of manipulation. And in the end, it, this destroys him, right? I mean, he, his soul, he, he creates this horcrux, right? And it's all these pieces of his soul are separated. And in the end, he ends up this miserable, pitiful thing in this afterlife, right? So she's, she's showing the model and the anti-model in extraordinary detail over the series. And as you know, as the series progresses, it, it becomes more mature in its treatment of uh, the implications of how you're using these, these powers. Um, but it's also very, very powerful, I think, in conveying to readers the importance of developing this understanding of others. And and one more note on, on the impartial spectator point, like like you, you brought the example with Harry on the train with Ron and stuff and how the reader can tell in that situation, obviously, Harry would be, um, he has his impartial spectator at work, if you will, you know, kind of guiding his conscience as we go. And this might sound like a trivial point I'm about to make, but I think it's, it's a compliment to, to uh, J.K. Rowling's work, which is that to say, like, at least what I noticed is that, as you said, as the, as the series matures, um, obviously Harry as a, as a character matures, but I found that the way, the way she writes and goes into the content, um, you... I don't know how to explain this, but I think you'll know what I'm getting to, which you as a reader, which is kind of like an impartial spectator because it's written in a third person omniscient, if I remember correctly, which is which is basically they like you're you as an impartial spectator also mature with the series, whereas like the kind of top subject matter being handled in the first book, as you said, it's a lot different than like the sixth and seventh, for instance. And I thought that was very interesting, too, that she develops you as a reader, as an impartial spectator, too, in terms of the subject matter that's being handled. Absolutely. And she provides a really great model of that in Harry because as he gets older, he learns not only to use that impartial spectator process to judge other people, but to judge himself, which is really, really, really hard, right? It's so hard to judge ourselves. But she um, she depicts this um, especially beautifully in The Order of the Phoenix and the scene in which Harry is, you know, he loves Ron and Hermione, but he's experiencing this jealousy of Ron who's been made a prefect when he hasn't. And, and Rowling is able to depict how Harry is able to separate himself. There's like this kind of voice outside of himself and he's having this kind of dialogue and, and the external voice is an impartial spectator that's constantly saying, 
are you really that much better than Ron? What, what is really going on here, right? And, and Harry comes to understand that he is behaving inappropriately. And it's, it's over time, he gets better and better at that. So he's not only able to judge himself, but he cultivates a kind of praiseworthiness, which Smith says is super important, right? Um, he says, we naturally desire praise. But the truly moral person desires to be praiseworthy. So even when society misjudges you, when people don't understand what you're doing, if you are praiseworthy, you know you are doing the right thing. And Harry has that. And that's what a hero needs in order to have the courage to do the right thing. Right. Yeah. And let's dig into that a little further, for, again, for those who might be familiar. So let, let's talk a bit about the the loved and lovely praised and praiseworthiness. So so I, I forget the exact quote, but it's the famous one, right, where he says that man uh, des, uh, desires to be not only loved, but but lovely. So I, found, I find that very interesting. And, and of course, uh, Harry Potter does, does play with that a lot, where there are times where Harry uh, is, is both praised and praiseworthy, but there's also times in the book where he might be praised, but doesn't feel like there is praiseworthiness there because of his reputation preceding him. So I, I think that's that's very interestingly explored as well. Absolutely. So, for example, um, in uh, the Goblet of Fire, um, he he's too young to be a contestant, right? In the in the tournament, and uh, his name is put into the goblet um, without his consent, without his knowledge, and he is chosen as one of the house champions, and. Even his best friend, Ron, doesn't believe that he didn't do this, right? And so Harry has to try to deal with the fact that he is misjudged, even by people who love him, and to persist in trying to do the right thing that's praiseworthy as he moves forward. Um, he, he has to do this throughout the series. Um, constantly, he's misjudged by his classmates. There are periods in, in Harry's, Harry's life when you know, some of the students just won't even talk to him, right? And I think a lot of readers will will sympathize with, you know, maybe a low point in which people don't understand where you're coming from and they're misjudging you. And Harry provides a really wonderful model of that. And Rowling does something else um, to help us see how this works. She has this sort of magical bowl, right? This kind of right where um you can stick your face in this like water and you can see the past of someone and you can see it as it actually was in the third person and when harry does this and he sees snape's memories he understands that he has misjudged snape because he knows snape's full situation and he understands that he has misjudged his own father who was you know a real pill when he was a teenager because he didn't know his father's situation. But perhaps the greatest discovery is that Harry has um, made errors in his own judgment because he thought Snape was just so bad and he was um, proud of his father and, and modeling himself on his father and proud of his own judgment, right? And so this process of judgment is complicated. Um, and it's something that you have to learn over time. And it's something you have to practice over and over again. And rolling when she uses these magical devices, she makes them literally visible for readers so that we can understand that uh, to make these moral judgments, these moral calls, we have to have information. We have to know the situation. We can't judge it partially. And actually with that, I think that is an excellent place to take our break. So, so we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Caroline Brashears today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Vincent Geloso, Alessandro Fiorello, and Amy Willis. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Caroline Brashears today. 
So Caroline, I think that, w- that was a great first half. It's, it's always great to do a deep dive into Harry Potter. I'm going to remember that in post-production. We have to put a bit of a, a, a spoiler alert and a, a warning in front of the episode before it starts for those who may may still not be unfamiliar with the story, although it's pretty much ubiquitous in our culture at this point. I, I did want to shift gears a little bit too, because I, I, I think it would allow us to explore yet another concept um, from Adam Smith. In one of the essays that you wrote, I, I read a bit about the fact that you did focus a little on on, on George Orwell, specifically 1984, and he presents us an, an interesting avenue to explore Smithian concepts as well. One thing I wanted you to elaborate on today was was the inter- interesting connection that you make uh, between the impartial about the impartial spectator, I should say, within this sort of dystopian society that Orwell creates. Right? As a matter of fact, you sort of say that. This idea of big brother and being part of the party and this idea that there's a, a moral code of conduct to always follow and certain thoughts you're essentially being told are not the right thoughts or, or what wouldn't do to think, as Orwell said in another essay. Um, all that to say, here's a case where you say that this is an example of where, where the impartial spectator in all in all of us, if we were to live in this society, is actually it's, it's being encouraged to be suppressed. I found that very interesting that you made that observation. Right. Uh- Orwell is uh, really brilliant in depicting that process. And I think it's it's um, apparent in a lot of dystopian fiction because when you separate people, when you isolate them and when you limit their thought and you uh, constantly subject them to surveillance and censorship, you encourage people to conform because they're always on display. They always have to be performing that conformity as opposed to cultivating their own moral judgment. And so in 1984, for instance, every time uh, uh, Winston Winston Smith um, goes anywhere, he is constantly being watched. There are screens everywhere. Um, They're described as dull, uh, mirror-like, screens. So these are televisions that are mirror-like. And the mirror uh, component is important because the the television screens, they're constantly projecting and someone is constantly speaking like 24-7 what the the government, INGSOC, which stands for English Socialism, INGSOC wants you to think right? This is the correct moral judgment of something that you must adopt. But at the same time, they're constantly watching you and listening to you and will even speak to you and correct you, for instance, if Winston isn't exercising appropriately. So you constantly have to be on your guard performing this. And this is, it's very haunting when you read it alongside Smith's theory of moral sentiments, especially part three, in which Smith says, you know, how do we develop moral judgment? Okay, how do we do this? Well, you bring someone into society and society provides the mirror that you need to understand what is appropriate and inappropriate behavior. In this case, the mirror is a corrupt totalitarian government. And so it is not teaching you correct morality, it's teaching you conformity for Ingsoc's purposes. And within that government, there's, a, there's an inner party, which is like a very small percentage of the population who are running things. And then there's the lower party who are expected to conform. The proletariat aren't subjected so much to that. And so the proletariat and his novel retain their traditional moral values. And that's really uh, an important part. So what, what happens then in 1984 is Winston, the main character, senses that things are wrong. He's unhappy that uh, he knows the government is always lying. In fact, his job is to lie for the government. He works in the Ministry of Truth. And he is afraid that all sense of truth is being destroyed. And you know, we know this with the party slogans, which is mangling everything. Freedom is slavery, right? Um, and so he's disturbed by this. So what he does is he gets a notebook and an actual pen and he hides in the corner of his apartment. So he's just out of sight of the screen and he starts writing a journal. And, and this is very powerful because when you think about it, a journal is a way of reflecting on your past self. It provides a way to provide, it provides a way for you to, um, 
have temporal distance from your past self and judge your past self impartially. So he's trying to reflect on what's happened in the past and to make sense of it. And it's hard for him, right? It's hard for him to have a vocabulary for things that are going wrong. But when we get to that first entry, right, it's absolutely horrifying because he's reflecting on going to see a film. And the film is about war refugees in the Mediterranean. And Ingsoc is basically bombing them to death. And the film is actual footage of people in a lifeboat trying to escape and a mother trying to protect her child. And then the camera swoops in and shows the boat being bombed and the child being killed and an arm flying into the air. And what Winston says is that the party members at the theater cheer. It's, it's really well done, right? It's a great shot of the violence. Whereas the proletariat in that theater are who haven't been indoctrinated in the same, same way are appalled. And, and one woman starts protesting and saying, you shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't show that in front of the children and the police take her away, right? So at the beginning, we see where Winston is, right? Where he's not able to make those moral judgments. But as he progresses over the course of that first volume, keeping that journal, he reflects more and more on the, the morality of the proles and things that need to be changing. But we also see the way in which the moral judgment is corrupted. And again, Smith is just brilliantly helpful here because Smith says that, that there's no place where the impartial spectator is further dissent than amidst uh, factionalism, right? Political conflict. And Ingsoc de deliberately whips people into hatred against uh, their, their political enemies, both inside the country and outside the country. And it keeps people angry and furious. And again, that pre prevents them from developing that kind of moral judgment that they need to progress. And Smith, Winston Smith does uh, progress over time. Um, there's a, a really interesting moment at the, the start of volume two, where he's walking down the hall and he sees this woman who he thinks is a party spy coming toward her. And so he hates her because he thinks she's a party spy um, and she has an injured arm and she falls, she falls on the arm and he, he halts and he thinks here's a human creature in pain. And he immediately sympathizes. He overcomes that hatred and he walks forward to help her. Right. It's the start of their affair. Right. So he's developing in moral judgment and he's developing in sympathy because that's what he needs. He's he's losing in what Orwell calls a, a locked loneliness. Right. Because the party has separated them. It's made even parents afraid of their children because the children, the children are taught that the number one loyalty they have to have is toward Ingsoc. And the children are taught that enemies must be published, punished. So for children, the great treat is to go to a public hanging and to see people hanged, right? And even Winston's co-workers go to the hangings. They think it's great fun, right? His, his co-worker Syme goes on and on about how he loves the hangings where you know, their tongues are sticking out and their eyes are bulging, right? Like he loves the graphic violence because the moral judgment has been eroded. Mm -hmm. And so Winston's forming that kind of relationship with Julia is the critical step towards sympathy. And changing gears just a little bit here, but still within 1984, because I found this interesting too. Can you ex explain the concept of, of, of the man of, of, of system to those who may be unfamiliar with it? And then also talk a bit about how we can apply it to 1984. Because um, obviously this is one of the, best connections you could probably make between a Smith concept and a book, right? Absolutely. So in 1984, um, what happens is Winston gets hold of something called the book, which is an explanation of how Ingsoc, the, the governing power, has um, gained and retained power. And what they, what they have done is... Um, they, they, they've gotten control of everything by forming a kind of oligarchy. Um, and 
so instead of having these constant revolutions in which the middle class rises and instead of helping the poor, they um, they become the ruling class and then they, they are overturned, right? You have an oligarchy which is not interested in the wealth. They just want the power. It's the power is everything. It's the desire for power. And the inner party members like O'Brien love that power, right? He loves, he, he, even, he even tells Winston, um, that he's like a cell in, in an organism, okay? And he loves the beauty of being in, in that organism. And what the party then does is it controls everyone. And throughout uh, 1984, um, there are constant allusions to chess, right? There's, there's a chess club, right? Um, there's a lecture on Ingsoc and chess. Um, chess would have been really significant, especially for Orwell's immediate readers, because they knew that the Soviet Union was prioritizing chess, right? It had political connotations at the time. Uh, Smith had actually, uh, sorry, Orwell had written about chess um, earlier in an earlier novel, right? When he was talking about socialists and he said, you know, a lot of what they want to do, these socialists, is they want to, they want to tidy things up and they, they treat the proletariat like their pieces on a chessboard. So he was really offended by this. And Ingsoc is doing the same thing to the citizens of Oceania in the novel. And so they are the men of system. And they think that they can move those um, members of the proletariat and the members of the outer party around on that chessboard. And at the end, it seems that initially, it seems that they have done that because uh, Winston, the main character, is tortured, his mind is broken, and he ends up in this cafe playing chess all day, right? Um, and, you know, he's not very good at it. He just, he just looks at the chessboard and he thinks, you know, white always wins, big brother always wins, right? And so initially you think that Ingsoc has won, but it hasn't. Because when you get to the appendix, um, which uh, the, the narrator actually directs us to the appendix in an earlier chapter, there's like a footnote directing us to the appendix. The appendix is an explanation of the language of the country, uh, Newspeak. And it's the appendix is in the past tense. It's what Newspeak did. It was what Newspeak was intended to do. It analyzes it in the past tense um, because Newspeak is no longer used, right? It was what the party was trying to do, which suggests that Ingsoc failed and there was a revolution, right? Okay, so what, what Smith says in the theory of moral sentiments is that there are politicians who think they know how to plan everything, who think they have it all worked out. They have their system and they're going to treat people like pieces on the chessboard. And if the members of a society agree with that, then that chess game is gonna go on beautifully. But if members of society have their own ideas and their own motions, and they start doing their own things, the, the game is gonna go miserably. And at the end of 1984, that game has fallen completely apart because those men of system, the Ingsoc leaders, they have miscalculated and they think that they were able to control everyone, but they cannot. They absolutely cannot. In your travels and, and research and all these all this literature and obviously on Orwell, just out of curiosity, is, is there any direct evidence uh, that Orwell might have actually been familiar with Smith's theory of moral sentiments? Have you encountered anything like that? Or maybe the answer is just no, not so far. I, I have seen absolutely no evidence for that. Um, one thing that I do know is that um, Orwell in 1944 reviewed uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And he reviewed it alongside uh, Connie Zuliakis's The Mirror of the Past. And it's a really, it's a really interesting review um, because Orwell, of course, was a, a devoted democratic socialist. And he he was also very much disturbed by what was happening in the Soviet Union. He was very opposed to totalitarianism. And so when he reviewed it, he, he agreed with Hayek 
about uh, the dangers of totalitarianism. There are passages in The Road to Serfdom that are just beautiful parallels to what Orwell later published in 1984, right? They were in sync in a lot of stuff. And he, he also liked Zuliakis's argument um, that, <laughs> that capitalism led to monopolies, right? Which led to dole queues, right? And so for Orwell then the problem then was tr to try to reconcile this concern that collectivism and socialism could lead to totalitarianism with his commitment to a planned society. And the way he concludes that review is that there's no way to do it unless um, a planned society can be combined with morality. So his concern in that review is, is a moral concern. And it's a really good reason to pair Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments with 1984, because that's the problem he's trying to solve. And he's trying to address the issue that Hayek is raising in the road to serfdom, which is that, you know, he's arguing that planning doesn't work because no, no individual, no committee is gonna have enough information to do that, right? They're ignoring the price signals, right? They, they, they just don't understand, they don't have enough information to do it. And so to, to plan the society, they're gonna call for greater and greater powers, which is gonna to lead to totalitarianism, which leads to moral corruption and all of these things. So what Orwell had to do then was to find a, a way out of that and to say, oh, planning could really work if we had moral, moral commitment, right? And so what he does in 1984 is he has the totalitarian government and he suggests that, that their great error is that they, they want power. And it's that uh, moral corruption within the totalitarianism that leads to the bad planning in 1984. That is his solution. It's, you know, it's, I mean, he's, he's wrong, obviously, right? There's, there's no way that the central planning could work, but that's what he's trying to suggest would actually happen in 1984 and he, he wants to hold out hope that it really could be made to work but he's unable to depict that he's unable to explain how and as our time winds down here before our formal wrap-up i just have one more question for you and then, then we'll head there um moving away from harry potter in 1984 um and without getting into too many specific examples or anything but just generally what other books or authors do you think uh, le leverage Smithian concepts well, with or without knowing so. What, what other kinds of uh, books and pieces of literature have you encountered that, that you're working on and thinking about as, as you also think of the theory of moral sentiments? Well, I think a lot of people have been drawn to Frankenstein as a text that pairs really well with the theory of moral sentiments because it is dealing with a, a real problem in sympathy, a gap in sympathy between uh, Frankenstein as the creator and then the creature, right? And so they pair really well together, um, especially in dealing with, um, you, you know, matters of justice and benevolence and the line between them and trying to figure out what it is that the creature owes his creator and what the creator owes the creature. I also think that uh, Frankenstein pairs really well with the history of astronomy. Um, and one reason is that the history of astronomy is dealing with um, discovery and what motivates that discovery, right? And part of it is wonder, right? The, the wonder of things that are extraordinary. And so it's Frankenstein's wonder that leads him to create this being who is essentially a new species. But the problem then is that the creature is himself a wonder in a Smithian sense, because he doesn't neatly fit into any specific category. And so you can't figure out what he is as a species, which makes him really horrifying. So uh, Frankenstein is, is a text that that would uh, work really well with. I'm also, I happen to be reading uh, Zemyatin's We at the moment, and um, this is this is a dystopian novel that was published in Russia. Um, Orwell reviewed it. He was influenced by it. it. It was actually the first book that was um, 
banned by the Soviet censorship board in 1921. And it was like, you know, it was published elsewhere in translation. But what's really interesting in this one is that um, it's, it's told in the first person by a narrator and they're living in this world that's essentially a panopticon. Uh, everyone lives in glass buildings and they're constantly under surveillance by that government, right? And they are no longer individuals. The narrator starts by saying, I'm writing this to express not my views, but what we think. The novel's called We, right? Everyone gets up at the same time. They put on the same uniform. They go to breakfast at the same time. They lift their spoons at the same moment. They chew 45 times before swallowing. This is the world, right? And it's about his awakening um, at the start of this revolution. And he has to develop a sense of I in order to begin making moral judgments. And the difficulty of developing that I when you are under constant surveillance, but also when you are brought up to think that everyone has to be the same and that freedom is evil, that is a super difficult thing for him to do. And again, it's the same problem with the man of system, right? The benefactor thinks he can control everybody in this dystopia, and he can't. There is a revolution. And it's it's brilliant because you know the, the main character is he's a mathematician. He's all about the logic. And he says, there can't be a revolution. We have solved all the problems, right? Non-freedom means that no one ever commits a crime. We're all equal. We don't have envy anymore. And the woman he's in love with says, what's, what's the final number? And he says, well, there's not one. He says, that's right. There's not a final revolution. And with that, I think I'll have to move us to our formal wrap up because our time is pretty much wound down here. So, so, so Caroline, let me say, we've talked about a lot. I, th- I think it was a very interesting discussion, but let's try and bring the conversation full circle and, and put a finer point of our, on our exploration of the question today. I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word in, in each episode here. So let me ask you officially, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what Adam Smith has to do with literature and what his, his work in TMS can teach us about it. If, if, in other words, if you wanted someone to take away one or two or just a few things from our conversation today, what would that ultimately be? Adam Smith is especially helpful for reading literature because he presents this very beautiful coherent system for human flourishing um, in relation to literature and ethics and economics and even even science. And what his texts offer us is a way of asking really helpful questions about literature that lead us to a deeper understanding of not only the texts, but ourselves and how to have better lives. I, I think that's a great place to leave it. Caroline Brashears, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>